Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we kick off the series with a conversation with Tanya Carmichael. Tanya leads the Global Funds team for the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, which invests on behalf of 330,000 active and retired teachers in the province. Teachers Today manages 39 billion Canadian in private markets across both the funds program, but also its direct and co-investment programs. I've had the pleasure of working alongside Tanya for many years in her capacity as a member of the ILPA Board of Directors, and most recently its chair from 2016 to 2019. Tanya has also been an incredible leader in the movement for responsible investment in our industry, including serving on the PRI's Private Equity Steering Committee. So Tanya, thank you for joining the conversation today. Great to be here. Thanks, Jen. So Tanya, as you know, I'm always curious about how people find their way to this industry. I'd never heard of an LP 20 years ago when I was just getting started in professional life, didn't know much about private equity myself. You studied political science at Queen's University and then went on to pursue law at Western. At that time, did you have any inkling that one day you might wind up as a limited partner or even in private equity? I did not know what private equity was. I did not know what a limited partner was. So it is fair to say that this is something that came to me later in my career in terms of learning about the opportunity. And we often talk about this industry being an apprenticeship model. So however you find your way to being an LP, so much of it is learning by doing, by shadowing thoughtful folks who figured it out. When you were a baby LP, as we say, there were no formal education programs. There was no ILPA Institute, no real roadmap or blueprint. So how did you figure it out and what role models did you look up to and who coached you along that journey? Sure. Well, I started in private equity in a bank, in a financial institution. I worked at CIBC in Toronto in first a series of quasi-legal roles, which started to give me exposure to the merchant banking group. And I was fortunate enough to find my way into a really interesting position there. So I learned within a bank. I did not know about ILPA, so that was not on my radar. But I had the opportunity to work with some really smart people who were not only knowledgeable about private equity, but also could bridge the legal background that I had and help me bring all of my strengths to bear while I learned a new a new sector of the financial services market. So I was lucky enough, there was a good friend, colleague, a mentor of mine, Michelle Bacanani, who was really instrumental in helping me in those formative years. But you learn by doing. And the bank was an excellent training ground for that. And I couldn't think of a better place to get my, get my feet wet in the industry. And you mentioned at the time you hadn't really heard of ILPA and it wasn't all that established probably in the early days when you were at CIBC. So tell me about how you connected with that community. Sure. I was lucky to spend 10 years at CIBC in a range of of roles, uh, the last five years being in core private equity. And then I did decide to pursue an opportunity that came up at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and really 
gave me the chance to evolve into more of a principal investing fiduciary type of role. So it was really once I left CIBC that I started to meet other LPs in the Toronto community and understand that there was a much bigger world out there that I, I frankly hadn't been exposed to when I had more of the investment banking approach to private equity investment and interactions. So it was at that time when I joined teachers that I found out about ILPA and started to understand really how how large this community was. And particularly in Toronto, I think there's a fantastic community there. Yes, agreed, agreed. And we were all around the corner from each other and I just, I didn't know them. So it was like, I found this new gang. It was great. So while we're still talking about the, the journey you've been on, thinking back to that younger version of yourself, maybe in those first days at, at CIBC, not knowing the future that lie ahead of you as a limited partner, what advice would you give that 20-something version of you? Well, the benefit of hindsight is a great thing. So I don't know that I would have been able to articulate this at the time. But having been in this industry now for 20 plus years, and working with different kinds of institutions and teams and having different roles, I can honestly say that it's really important to pay attention to what your strengths are, what your interests are, and really what makes you happy. So I do believe that we are all wired a certain way. You can develop, you can grow, you can learn, but you are who you are. I believe that. I know that's true for me. And so I would just say to my 20-something self, pay attention to those things because ultimately it will be what brings you the most happiness and fulfillment in your professional life. Truer words never said, Tanya. I wish I'd had that advice myself. Let's talk about ESG. I know it's a passion of yours, but you didn't start out as a champion for ESG. You and I have discussed that most people in our industry didn't start there, but you not only came around yourself, you used your voice in a powerful way to call other LPs to action. So how did that happen? And how did you bring along your colleagues, both internally at teachers, but also externally, including your fellow LPs? It's a great question. Well, before I had the opportunity to talk with colleagues internally and externally about ESG, it is worth mentioning that I definitely had an aha moment where I realized how little I knew about what ESG meant. So if you'll indulge me for two seconds, I remember being at an ILPA meeting in London, England, and we were wrapping up three three days of you know, great sessions and networking and wonderful community. So one of the sessions later in the program was a session on ESG, which truthfully, I I hadn't really planned to go to. And I knew the gentleman running the course, Tom Rotherham, who was very deep in the ESG community and was a great advocate and sharer of of information and and experiences. And I, I tagged along with two LPs from BT Pension Scheme who were very passionate about the topic as well, Helene Winch and and Catherine Graham. And I sat in on this ESG session and I have to say it debunked most of the things that I had heard about ESG, meaning you have to sacrifice returns, having it be uh, not about 
core investment principles. And it really started me on a journey where I wanted to learn more. I found out that there were a lot of smart LPs that I knew and respected who were already starting on this journey. It wasn't a lot of LPs, but it was some really important, thoughtful ones that I thought I I would like to learn from these people. So that's where it started for me. And after that, I had the chance to work with uh, colleagues across teachers. They were already thinking about climate change a lot. And so we just kept at it and tried to figure out how to integrate this within our own shop at Ontario Teachers in each asset class. And once we got some confidence around what it meant to us, it was a natural conversation starter with other LPs to understand how they were doing it. And if they weren't familiar or weren't sure what it was about, sharing what I could. And it just goes from there. So that's always generally my approach is one of engagement, trying to learn from others and and share my perspectives if they're helpful. And that was probably nine or 10 years ago. And I'll just say, I think that spirit of generosity that you and your your colleagues at Teachers have demonstrated has gone a long way in advancing the conversation with other LPs, at least as far as I've observed. But to your point about that assumed trade-off between ESG and returns, I know as a fiduciary, you take your obligation very, very seriously on behalf of all of the active and retired teachers that you serve and that your colleagues at Teachers do as well. So when you talk about that conversation internally, what does it mean in the context of integrating values into investing? That question has a lot more relevance and airtime right now. It's such a pivotal time in our industry, certainly at Teachers, between the pandemic, between some of the really horrific events that we've all observed and had to digest socially. I do think that it's a bit of a tipping point for people and institutions to try to take a step back and figure out who they want to be. So it's really ramped up our focus on ESG from being, if I'm if I'm honest, a bit more on the reactive, do no harm, make sure that we're being good corporate citizens to potentially looking ahead and saying, what more can we be doing? Should we be doing what as an institution will allow us to marry our fiduciary duty, our need to pay pensions, but also really embrace our brand, our purpose, and how we want to show up in the world. So that's how we're thinking about it within Ontario teachers. It's hard to go backwards and unsee what has happened over the last five months, but I'm really excited about the the conversations that are happening, not only within teachers, but across the industry. And you can see people stepping up everywhere. So I'm pretty optimistic that this will be a good catalyst to allow capital allocators and managers to really push themselves forward into something better. And I think the intentionality behind the experience that you're having at teachers and and that you see reflected going on at other organizations is so inspiring, gives me so much hope. And I know that you've undergone a lot of introspection and reflection about how you want to show up in the world. and And you've just commented on that. 
I'm curious when we talk about how that conversation is taking place with your managers and within your managers, particularly when, you know, perhaps a manager that you're contemplating a relationship with or that you're already invested with is not as far along in how they've incorporated ESG into their own decision-making and operations. What does that conversation look like for you? It's a very accurate observation, Jen, because there are GPs that appear anywhere on the spectrum of, I'll call it maturity. I just mean that in the sense of how long and how deep they are into this ESG and impact and sustainability type of conversation. I remember a time, it feels not so long ago, when there were a smaller number of GPs that really leaned into the ESG efforts, wanted to have a policy, knew they needed to have a policy. And the majority maybe were slower to get there and slower to understand that it absolutely could apply to them. But I'm, I'm really happy to say that as an industry, I do believe that every manager now has, has taken that, that proactive step to have a policy. Now, there are some that are really far ahead. They were the early thought leaders, and they are the ones that I continue to look to to understand how they are applying a lens of impact or sustainable thinking to just make better companies, to build things that are going to last, that look at the quantitative always, but the qualitative in ways that are just very brand enhancing for these companies, for the firms. And I think others are catching on there. They are aware that efforts in the community, that what type of company people work for matters a lot to talent and talent being such a major contributor of the success of companies and firms. The discussion around inclusion and diversity, all of these things feel like they're coming together in a way that is really going to impact how private equity managers are going out and looking for investments, managing investments, and really portraying themselves to the market. So it's exciting to see that momentum building. I do think that there's a ways to go for for all of us. We can always do more, but I, I do feel like it's coming together in the industry in a way that I haven't seen before. So it does it does make me excited. But you asked about the conversation with GPs. Honestly, I think the best thing that LPs can do and, and what we try to do is we try to share best practices. We talk about not only what we've seen others do that really resonates, we talk about how we're going about it within Ontario teachers. We share experiences. We offer up resources. We we get on the phone to exchange views and approaches. And so it's that building the community of engagement and discussion and awareness around this that for us is very impactful and we'll continue to do that. And that's where ILPA can play a role, frankly, in bringing people together as well. So I hope that answers the question on, on how we engage. We, we look to those that are doing really amazing things, hope to try and bring some of that back and we share where we can with others who are maybe earlier in their journey. And so much of the evolution of our industry is really the product of that consistent and persistent LP engagement. 
with GPs and and really to, to help them reflect, to help them take some cues from their LPs and have a different conversation and really show up differently. So that's wonderful to hear. Let's talk about teachers' leadership within the PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment. When you look at the growth and the signatories to the PRI, it's amazing how many asset allocators have joined that movement. I think there are more than 500 asset owners um, that are signatories today, but a lot of LPs, even within the OPA membership, are not yet there. And it's also surprising to me that a lot of leading GPs are not yet signatories. So what do you think it will take for more LPs to show up, whether as signatories to the PRI or, or in other demonstrable ways? So the PRI, I agree, first of all, with your assessment in terms of there being more asset allocators than managers that are signatories, still not enough asset allocators, but we can work on that. I think that there is an extent of overthinking this going on for those who have looked at the opportunity to become a signatory and decided not to do it at this time. I do think it's an open question for many GPs and LPs, which is great. It's not that we're hearing no, we're never going to join. But on the GP side, I do tend to hear, we've looked at it, we are doing something different that we feel is just as good. Therefore, we're not going to sign at this time. That answer, while I understand it, kind of disappoints me because there is something to being part of a global community that stands for something. And I do think that the biggest maybe impediment that that people point to, and we frankly considered the same thing before we joined, was the reporting obligations around what you're doing as a signatory. There's a process to that. It definitely takes some time, but I do think that's that's really not the main point. The main point is opting into something that stands for something. So I would say to GPs and LPs, you send a really strong signal by choosing to join the PRI community. And whether you're a member or signatory or not a signatory, it probably doesn't really change your day-to-day, but it does send a message and it's something that people notice. So to GPs, your LPs will notice if you do this. It will send a strong signal of leadership and purpose that you can point to. So I'm not going to fault anything that GPs are doing Everyone needs to find their own way, but I, I would like to see some more people take that step. And that's a superb call to action for GPs more broadly, and, and hopefully your peers hear that call to action as well. So maybe just to wrap up, I want to turn it back to you for a moment. What are you reading right now, Tanya? So for anyone that knows me at work or actually at home as well, I probably am not the tidiest person. I like to hang on to stuff. There are usually piles of paper on my desk that I don't want to throw out magazines that I want to read that article or I like that article. So you might say that I am not the tidiest person. So I was given a book to read that I am loving. It is called Messy. It is by Tim Harford. And the whole premise of it is the power of disorder to transform our lives. And actually, it's quite interesting because... It talks about a lot of inspiration and creativity and innovation that comes out of 
not planning things too perfectly. So there's the teaser. I'm loving it. It's very much not what I thought it was going to be, but that's what I'm reading right now. And thinking about this prolonged moment of disruption we're all living through, my hope is, uh, you know, creativity does bloom. One more question for you, Tanya, is what would you be doing if you weren't a limited partner or if you weren't at Teachers? It's hard for me to imagine not doing what I'm doing. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. One of the things that I mentioned earlier about knowing who you are, what brings you joy in your in your working life is something that I'm going to answer this question with. I have, over the last three or four years, really spent a lot of time understanding and learning and, and leaning into topics around culture, leadership, and the impact that strong teams can have on results, on strategy, on alignment. And I'm extremely passionate about it. It's brought me so much more purpose to a job I already loved. So I would say something that has those ingredients around culture teams leadership would be high on my list. Incredibly inspiring and in line with the conversation that we've had today. Tanya, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight. Thank you, Jen. Have a great day. 